0: But my favorite reading books, old school, and my favorite interviews are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. Douglas Brinkley is the Catherine Sanoff Brown Chair in Humanities and Professor of History at Rice University. He's the Presidential Historian for the New York Historical Society, trustee of the FDR Presidential Library, and a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, Most importantly for our purposes, the presidential historian is now the author of Silent Spring Revolution. John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Great Environmental Awakening. This is Douglas Sprinkley. Hey, Doug, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being here. You brought back a childhood memory for me, circa late 1960s, when annually, or so it seemed, I don't know what to describe it as other than a fogging truck, like a truck would come down our our cookie cutter suburban community and blow some type of, uh, I guess, DDT sort of material. And all the kids in the neighborhood, we would ride our bikes through it. In fact, we look forward to it every day when it would arrive. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Uh, You're talking about DDT that was poisoning the landscape of the United States. Um, you know, after World War II, um, you know, there became a movement to perhaps ban DDT. During the war, it was considered a miracle, like presto, chemistry's great new invention, because it killed lice, it killed mosquitoes, uh, it saved our soldiers fighting in, um, in the Pacific Theater from contracting a malarial disease. But out of Pawtuxent National Wildlife Center in Maryland, Um, biologists started finding that it had a detrimental effect to fish, to birds, and potentially humans, and their movement uh, started growing to ban DDT, and it hit its zenith when Rachel Carson published uh, Silent Spring Revolution in 1962, warning of the perils of DDT, but it took a decade to ban it. Uh, It wasn't until 1972 That um, the EPA, which had been created two years earlier, um, that the first head of it, William Ruckelshaus, banned DDT. Richard Nixon reluctantly agreed to ban it. And uh, alas, that was the end of those um, trucks you used to follow.
0: And of course, our kids, our parents, pardon me, were none the wiser. Here we were on banana seat bikes, all riding through this, this white haze and ingesting God knows what.
1: Well, exactly. And the big thing that triggered the worry about DDT was Marjorie Spock in the late 1950s. She was an organic farmer on Long Island, and she had a beautiful organic, uh, you know, produce that she was trying to sell. But a Suffolk County um, agricultural plane and a a U.S. Department of Agriculture plane would spray DDT substances just, you know, willy-nilly blanket the fields of Long Island. So she sued and said, I'm losing my right to be an organic farmer. It went all the way to the Supreme Court uh, and Marjorie Spock, who incidentally, whose brother was Dr. Benjamin Spock, the baby doctor. <laughs> um, but they, but they, she went, she lost. Uh, but there was a, out of loss was victory because William O. Douglas of the Supreme Court wrote a, a really brilliant dissent saying no, she has the right to be an organic farmer and the government's wrong. And By the way, DDT is a a toxin and it's going to create uh, spikes of cancer and leukemia and everything else and people that are overexposed to it.
0: I'm learning so much as I'm reading Silent Spring Revolution. I am a lifelong Pennsylvanian, unfamiliar until I read your book with the 1948 Donora incident. What happened?
1: Oh boy, that should be a a, a movie or something. Uh, in the town of Denora, Pennsylvania, it's uh, where smog really gets invented the word because in 48 uh, there was an inversion of chemicals from factories uh, along the river. A heat wave came and it trapped the air in uh, like a like in a bowl and nobody could breathe in the whole town of Denora. Um, people died uh, by the scores and everybody had a respiratory illness and out of denora became the beginning of the national fight for clean air because this was obviously unacceptable whole town sick and they in the first clean air act one of december 1970 was a result of denora which was a, uh, which was getting emission standards from stationary sources of pollution uh, you know energy facilities incinerators factories et cetera. the second clean air act i write about is in 1970, and that's going after automobiles, another great source of pollution, and and that movement led to getting lead out of gasoline. So both together really did, did something, but we forget how horrible um, air quality was in America until the federal government stepped in. It's one thing that a state can't do. Pennsylvania can't have one air quality law while Ohio has a different one.
0: Listen to Michael Live, weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. So, Douglas Brinkley, the presidential historian, this is, a I sense, a blending of passions for you. It's the third in a trilogy of books that look at presidential leadership and at environmental policy. And in it, you're spanning the administrations of JFK, LBJ, and Richard Nixon, Something else that I've learned for you from you is that each of those three personalities was drawn to the environment, but a much different part of the American landscape. Right. I mean, for for Kennedy, it's the ocean. Uh, It's New England generally for LBJ. It's Texas for Richard Nixon. It's the surf of Southern California. Speak to those personalities and what caused them to take on these issues.
1: Well, that's exactly right. When I, You write about Theodore Roosevelt or FDR. They just loved um, wildlife biology, forestry, conservation. It was right in their wheelhouses, and they put it at the very top of the national agenda. Uh, what happened to Kennedy, I doubt he would have put environment high, uh, except he got convinced to join a national seashore preservation movement as a senator in the 1950s. Uh, he was spurred on by William O. Douglas, but also his mother, Rose Kennedy, Whose hero was Henry David Thoreau, and she grew up near Walden, and all the Kennedy kids learned to swim in Walden as if a baptismal experience. And um, Kennedy started fighting for Cape Cod National Seashore. And what was important about that, and he got it past his first year as president, was that cities like Wellfleet and Turo, Provincetown, they live within the national park. The park weaves between communities. So it wasn't just, here's the line of the park um, that you might have, say, at the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone. And then Kennedy kept pushing seashore preservation and and, uh, protected um, Point Reyes in California, Marin County, beautiful uh, uh, coastal landscape in Padre Island in Texas, a vast swath of the Gulf of Mexico that today's run by the Interior Department, uh, and part of this seashore for Kennedy was Rachel Carson, who had written three books before Silent Spring, all about the beauty of the sea, the edge of the sea, the wonders of the sea. She studied, you know, a mackerel and and eels and and, um, and you know sanderlings, all sorts of species. And Jacques Cousteau was having television shows and movies about the oceans, and soon to be the TV show Flipper. And there was new um, science coming out that whales made sounds and communicated. So there was an uptick of interest in the oceans. Kennedy seized it. He had Michael Blue Mind. Kennedy always needed to be on an ocean setting to be relaxed, uh, even in. Tense Berlin or Cuban Missile Crisis meetings, he would be doodling sailboats or or uh, oceanside. Um, you Took
0: know, his own um, boat to Harvard.
1: Yeah, he was very good at the, good at at a great sailor, great on at the sea, and so that came naturally to him. Um, and then you know Lyndon Johnson's connection is to the Pedernales River in the Texas Hill Country and that's where his ranch was and his lifeblood was uh he went back there often to have his white house he viewed conservation more as a frontier wilderness cowboy kind of way and got in the end very behind the wilderness act of 1964 where if people aren't aware we have large parts of our country it could be a million acres here a million there of wilderness which means no roads allowed to be built because Roads from the wilderness lobby were the enemy. They brought in electricity, they brought in porta-potties, rest centers, and eventually it could be oil and gas and timber. Uh, So if you kept areas roadless, uh, modern commerce wouldn't get to it, and you could have something that was um, uh, quite pristine for hunters, uh, anglers, kayakers, campers, and the like. Uh, Johnson does a lot. I write in the book that though you can 't think of him alone it 's a marriage. Lady Bird Johnson is tied to his hip and she 's promoting beautification of our country, uh, getting down uh, vulgar billboards. She goes um, as first lady down the Rio Grande River between um, the United States and Mexico at Big Bend National Park. She goes up and helps save the Redwood kingdom of Marin and Mendocino counties and and Humboldt counties in California. She'll go uh, rafting down the Snake River in Idaho with Secretary of Interior Udall. So it's a powerful one-two punch, Lyndon and Lady Bird, for the environmental movement. At the time when they were executing the Vietnam War – and the the left of the Democratic Party was even more vociferous for ecological change, for earth stewardship. Uh, so Johnson was listening to his people, but going more a middle route than some of the, the far left wanted to do. And Nixon, to my surprise, one of our a reluctant environmentalists, but I try to humanize all of his accomplishments. After all, Nixon created the uh, National Environmental Policy Act which gives us all of our impact statements on the environment that if you're going to build something, you're going to have to say, how is nature affected? He also founded our Environmental Protection Agency, signed the Clean Water Act, um, did the Endangered Species Act of 1973, did uh, urban wilderness like the Golden Gate National Recreation Area or Gateway National Recreation Area in New York and um, in New Jersey, and even went on and signed all sorts of new national parks like the Apostle Islands up in Wisconsin or Cumberland Island in Georgia. Uh, so Nixon has quite an environmental legacy. So all three of these presidents uh, paid attention to the environment put it high on their list of public policy priorities and they did it because the people were demanding it Uh, and rachel carson was a catalyst because she told moms and dads your kids could get sick playing in their backyard your grass may be sprayed with poison
0: for nixon was it politics or was it a love of the environment or a combination of both
1: i'd say two-thirds politics maybe even three-fourths and then a love of the environment uh, in 68, when he ran for president, uh, the um, uh, reporters were asking him environmental questions, and he didn't know the answers. But he hired John Ehrlichman, who we now all know for Watergate and going sure. to prison. Ehrlichman in those days was a Seattle land and water lawyer, and basically, what Ehrlichman was was the, the highest priced and best NIMBY lawyer in the in Puget Sound area. Um, if you were a wealthy community and you didn't want a aluminum plant in your neighborhood, you'd hire Ruckelshaus. Uh, and so he was on the side of the environmentalist. Uh, that's how he made his money. So Nixon knew he was a Republican uh, uh, and a very smart lawyer. So he said, look, you're my environmental guy, and that turned into being Nixon's domestic advisor. Um, And for the left, people like David Brower of the Sierra Club, they would write, my God, we're so lucky, Nixon's put a covert green John Ehrlichman into the White House. And Ehrlichman got to work early because Nixon's only president days, and you have the Santa Barbara oil spill, and it was ghastly uh, because television had turned color." Uh, the news in 1967 so this is just after you're getting color television you're getting images of dead birds and oil gook aerial shots of paradise destroyed nixon goes there and looks looks at the damage and um and so nixon's forced to respond to santa barbara worse yet over the summer of 1969 time magazine chooses to put the cuyahoga river on its cover and the cuyahoga river has caught fire uh meaning you throw a match and the thing goes up because there's so much grease and grime and industrial debris in it and the rouge river in michigan had caught fire and there was this became unacceptable to the american people even dr seuss theodore geisel wrote in you know about the death dying of lake erie in one of his children's books and um that so that fall of sixty nine as Senator Gaylord Nelson of um you know of Wisconsin created the idea of an Earth Day, a teach in and the person who paid the bill for that big first Earth day in nineteen seventy was Walter Ruther, the head of the United Auto Workers, and Ruther was an ardent environmentalist in the sixties. Big labor was about saving the environment, less so these days, to put it mildly. But um, Nixon said, "Look, I'll sign some dramatic things as long as Ed Muskie's fingerprints are, aren't on it." Nixon had a loathing of, of of Muskie, Michael, that I've never encountered before. I mean, he won't if Nixon if if Muskie is in the anywhere within a mile of Nixon, he brings in the hives. Uh, he won't let Nixon be Muskie at a signing ceremony. He won't let uh, Muskie – if one word came out of Muskie's staff on a document, he wouldn't sign it. This was because Muskie was daily criticizing Nixon on the environment and protesting his um, foreign policy vis-a-vis um, Southeast Asian war. And, and so uh, instead, Nixon says, I'll do anything that Scoop Jackson wants. And Ehrlichman and Jackson, the Seattle people, were friends. And in a bipartisan fashion, um, the staff of Scoop Jackson would create these environmental laws. And then um, Ehrlichman would go over them, and, and, and they'd negotiate. And then Nixon would say, I'll sign off on it. And so it's the combo of Jackson working through Ehrlichman that gets um, Nixon to become the environmentalist that he is. He did have a special love of whales, Richard Nixon. He got very interested personally in promoting the mammal, uh, Marine Mammal Protection Act, to which protects whales and walrus, seal, and the like. Cause he did love his his Pacific settings, both in California at San Clemente, but also he'd go off into Florida uh, and go out on the water with his best friend, Bibi Rebozo. Bibi
0: Rebozo, right. Hey, yeah, Douglas, Robosa I didn't I, like
1: a jet port in Florida and he wanted to save the Everglades and things like that.
0: The book is called Silent Spring Revolution. The author is Douglas Brinkley. This is unfair to you, but I need you to do it in a minute. The book talks about so much accomplishment under three disparate presidents with a lot of congressional consent. When did we lose it? When did we lose the opportunity to work together in support of the environment?
1: It started in 1973. Endangered Species passes the Senate 92 to nothing. And um, and yet, at the exact time we had the Arab oil embargo with OPEC, and you started getting an energy oil gas lobby, extraction industries, chemical companies... Banding together and saying that we're we've been abused. We're being beaten on. We're becoming the demon. And there became really two lobby groups, a green lobby, which tends to go Democratic and a oil gas lobby Republican. There were crossover players for a while. Jimmy Carter years. You could still get some things done. But by the advent of Reagan in 1980, and then Citizens United with Money, um, they've become two giant lobby groups, and very seldom can you get them on the same page. Um, the Democrats have made climate change a big issue. Republicans think energy independence is the big one, and they get very ardent and adamant in their views without room to negotiate a, a middle ground, which is deeply unfortunate because protecting our air and water being good stewards of america should be a bipartisan endeavor
0: i am learning a great deal and i'm being entertained and i'm very appreciative congratulations on a great book
1: hey thank you for having me i really appreciate it
0: douglas brinkley ladies and gentlemen silent spring revolution good gift as we approach christmas john f kennedy rachel carson lyndon johnson richard nixon and the great environmental awakening right in the wheelhouse for POTUS listeners. Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirkanish program, weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124, and anytime on the
2: SXMF. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at smirconish.com.
1: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing.
2: Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president?